Hello and welcome to the Arbitration Station. I'm Brian Kotick and I have Sadia Bhatti here with me. Hi, Sadia. Hi, Brian. How are well, you? Welcome back. All is good. I got a little burned this weekend in the London sunshine. but Oh my gosh, is that why you were so... You seem a little bit I, I thought it was the lighting. I'm like totally white and I'm, of course, for people who know, I'm originally from Pakistan, so that's not a good sign. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> no, I got caught. I was like out, outside and I was like, I didn't even realize it was going to be the sunny and now I look like yeah. a... No, I look it like was, a cherry. <laughs> yeah, it was very, it was very nice. No, no, no. You look very, uh, you know, golden is the right term. Yeah, in Sweden, we, there's a word. It's called partner tan. It's, <laughs> it's only partners get tans because only the partners that... get that tan because they because they can't see properly because they're getting old. So they need to go outside and like right. natural light. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. That's it. The natural light on their yachts. Yep. Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> um. So yeah, we we're just on the back. This recording will come a bit later, but we're just on the back of London International Disputes Week. Um, you were at Tinley Hall. Um, yes. How did that go, by the way? Yeah. So for those who don't know, Tinley Hall is is a hotel. It's called Tinley Hall Hotel, and it's about one hour and a half, maybe two hours away from London, um, in the in the countryside of the UK. Uh, absolutely gorgeous place uh, where annually people gather to discuss about uh, arbitration-related issues, and it's organized by the LCIA. So it's not just London-centric you know, issues, there's general uh, arbitration issues, and it's attended by barristers, arbitrators, practitioners, um, you know, kind of uh, a whole mix. So it, and it, and the Tinley Hall format is basically you've got a list of issues that circulated prior that everybody kind of pitches in um, under three themes. So for example, procedure was one of the themes, the Arbitration Act, um, enforcement, you know, stuff like that, disclosure. And then everybody submits a question and then and then it's put for discussion in the forum. So everybody gets to participate basically. Oh, so it's like a coffee house uh, debate. It, it is. It okay. is. Except we're like about, I don't know how many we are, about hundred, I don't know, like a little less than Hundred, maybe, okay. um, and so it's manageable, and and everyone supposed to speak. I mean, some people do more than others, as you can imagine. Some people don't at all, um, but it's very interesting. And there's also a younger version of it, so it's young Tinley, um, and it's the night before. Oh. Um, and so we kind of overlap doing cocktail on Friday night, but they have their own kind of session, and then so the young one, I, <laughs> I have to confess, I was not aware of. Yeah, I haven't heard I of that. I went directly actually. to the senior one <laughs> and it's under 40. So I wouldn't qualify for it until anyways in the next couple of months. Um, but some people only go to the young one, even though they could go to the senior. I mean, I don't know. It's a bit of a, right. but um, yeah, so it was very interesting. So no, we were not in a yacht. But we were locked up <laughs> in a conference room. In a beautiful conference room. Yeah, a beautiful conference room discussing uh, different issues. And, you know, it was... It's interesting to see to see everyone up close and personal. Yeah. Well, 
uninspired of that, we will be talking um, about the Arbitration Act and the reforms in our interview today in our substantive segment um, with Simon Camilleri. He's of counsel at Quinn Emanuel here in London, and he talks about um, the consultation process that the Law Society, the Law Commission, excuse me, the Law Commission is doing in the reform 25 years after the UK Arbitration Act has been enacted, um, specifically focusing on the issue of the proper law to the arbitration agreement, which we've discussed previously on the podcast, mm-hmm. but this will be in the scope of what the UK um, legal society people here, our practitioners are viewing as the proper reforms that can be proposed in a draft bill to the legislature in order to reform it. We also touch on some of the other ones that are brought up, like discrimination, immunity, the arbitrators, uh, which I think are really interesting. And I encourage everyone to go on the Law Commission's website where the consultation papers and summaries are published. Um, So that's our substantive segment. And then you have our happy fun time. Yes, the happy fun time is how close is too close between you know the arbitration community we are there was always a critique of how we are a clique and you know friends too chummy um and of course the consequences it can have on on uh, challenges in the sort um in arbitration some challenges are getting crazier and crazier and so you know irrespective of what the iba guidelines (laughs) say or maybe they need to be updated uh, how can we deal with that when we go to conferences, for example, such as Disputes Week and there are pictures taken and meals together anyway. So we're talking to talk about that. Perfect. We also want to quickly plug that we are the uh, media sponsors, co-media sponsors for the um, iCal Alumni Anniversary Conference. It's the 20th anniversary conference of the iCal program in Stockholm, Sweden, taking place on the 31st of August and the 1st of September. This momentous event is a one and a half day conference on the theme evolution or revolution. Have we mastered international arbitration or do we need a blueprint for the future? Um, The tickets include a gala dinner, other networking opportunities and a chance to explore Stockholm in the best time of the year, which is August. Mm, Um, It it may get a little cold, but um, (laughs) I was helping with the organization committee. I've had to take a step back because I won't be able to attend, but the organization committee is doing an excellent job and they're putting so much into this. The Young Arbitrators and Young Arbitrators of Sweden initiative is um, helping out. The SEC is helping out. The Swedish Arbitration Association is helping out. So it's going to be really all hands on deck in Stockholm. So I we will put a link of where you can register for the event and I encourage everyone to go. Great. All right, well, without further ado, let's get started with interview with Simon Camilleri. Welcome back. We have Simon Camilleri here, who's of counsel at Quinn Emanuel here in London. Hi, Simon. How are you doing? Very well. Thank you, Brian. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you for joining us. I'm excited to have you on today. There have been a few podcasts that have actually covered this already since we're a bit behind um, the, the the wave here since it's already started. But the UK Law Commission is entering this consultation period about um, reviewing the Arbitration Act of 1996. We're about 25 years since its enactment. And there has been a, a motivation of the, of the Law Commission to take a second look at uh, what the Arbitration Act says and whether there's any possibilities for reform. Can you tell us just a bit generally about what the Law Commission is doing and what's what what this initiative um, kind of encapsulates? 
Of course. Um, just to preface this by saying these are obviously my opinions, not those of, of the, the firm that I work for or indeed of the that I work with. <laughs> yes. Um, we all have very different views. But um, um, yes, I mean, well, as you said, Brian, one of the key aspects of this is that the Arbitration Act has been kicking around for 25, over 25 years, almost 30 now. And there has been a desire to just look at aspects of, of the Act again and to think about whether it can be changed, updated, made better. Um, and so the Law Commission released a sort of consultation paper um, sort of last year around September um, and invited responses by December. Um, they touched on a very broad range of issues, some of which, you know, for the arbitral community um, were probably predictable. So things like Section 67, and jurisdictional challenges and whether those provisions should be reformed. Uh, Section 44 in relation to the court's powers to assist in, in, in the arbitration process, particularly in relation to whether the court could compel third parties to the arbitration to do anything. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you also had um, areas like confidentiality were re revisited and uh, Section 69 in relation relating to appeals on a point of law. That paper and the consultation that followed it uh, resulted in a further paper. Uh, the Law Commission doesn't always release other papers. They did this time, March, so much more recently. Oh, okay. Um, and, and there, the, the Law Commission sort of took on board what people had said. Um, and this was a much more focused paper. It looked at three areas. It looked at Section 67 again, showing Again, that that is a very controversial area. Right. Um, it looked at Enker and Chubb, which is something that I'll go on to, uh, relating to the law governing the arbitration agreement, um, and the issue of discrimination. Uh, that consultation actually closes, I think, today. Yes, uh, the day of this recording. That's right. That's right. Um, and then after that, um, the law the law commission will either release more papers if they think there's it's, there's something controversial enough that they need to consider, or they'll put forward a draft bill. Um, then there's another consultation on the draft bill, and then it goes to Parliament and they decide what they're going to do with it. Um, wow. Yeah. So it's a process. It, it, it may be at the thirty year mark before the Arbitration Act actually gets reformed, if it ever gets reformed. Right. Um, it, it is, it, I was reading um, a law fast by Morgan Lewis about this, and they, they had said that there was about 5,000 in arbitrations, and which is in England and Wales every year, and it estimates to contribute about 2.5 billion to the UK economy. So there is actually, um, and this kind of what, what I think leads into what you're going to talk about with um, the um, law of the arbitration agreement, because it's kind of this goal is to make English and or the arbitration in England and Wales as um, efficient, clear and modern as possible. And I, I found that particularly relevant in the issue of the law of arbitration agreement. So I'm, I'm excited to hear what you have to say on that. Yes, I mean, England is a sort of flagship jurisdiction, I think it's fair to say when it comes to arbitration, there are aspects of our arbitration law that people really like. So the way that we deal with confidentiality in England in arbitration is very popular. And, um, you know, there is a desire really to protect the confidentiality in, you know, in addition to the privacy of the process. Um, some people like things like Section 69 and appeals on points of law because it gives you the flexibility to look at things 
you know, again, although lots of arbitral rules exclude that, but right. the options there. Where English law has been perhaps less um, positive in the views of some uh, is the way that the the law, well, treats the question of what law governs the arbitration agreement. The reason for that is largely because the approach taken by the English court is considered to be quite um, complicated. Right. It's likely to generate costs and it's likely to take a lot of time to resolve. Um, the, the most recent sort of uh, uh, major case on this, there is another Supreme Court case, but the, the big one is is Enker and Chubb. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a case that, that sort of... Uh, really repeated what the previous law was in, in a case called Sin America, but if anything, made it slightly more complicated. Um, and I'll just summarise, I mean, the Law Commission report actually has a very good summary of of yep. of, of Enker and Chubb, but, and I'll, I'll sort of butcher it now in my attempt to summarise <laughs> that summary. Um, it starts with the uncontroversial position that if the arbitration agreement has its own uh, governing law, that is the one that applies that's pretty obvious right um it then goes on to say that if the law um if the main contract so the contract of which the arbitration agreement forms a part has a governing law but the arbitration agreement doesn't generally speaking that law will govern the arbitration agreement and mm-hmm. um, you then fall fall into the area where it becomes more complicated because that is followed by a but or an unless and that butter on less takes into account things like would the law governing the contract mean that the if it was applied to the arbitration agreement, it would make it void or unenforceable or, or, or in some other way difficult, as was the case in South America. Um, and then you go through a process of trying to figure out what law governs the arbitration agreement itself. You look at things like the seats, you look at which law has the closest and most real connection to the arbitration agreement. But by the time you've gone through this quite complicated process, you've had to figure out what law governs the main contract. You've had to figure out whether there's an implied choice that governs the arbitration clause, if because there very often isn't an express one. Yes. Um, and you end up having these big fights that end up going to the Supreme Court. So right. what the Law Commission has tried to do is, after a lot of people said, why don't you think about reforming this? has considered putting in a rule into the Arbitration Act that says, you know, the law of of the seat will govern the arbitration agreement as basically the default rule, unless the parties choose otherwise. Um, And that's that is, at least in my view, I think, quite, quite sensible. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, not plugging my, my own writing, but I wrote an article on this recently that addresses that point in in a broader context to do with the separability of the arbitration agreement and to explain that once you start from the premise as Enker and Chubb does, even though it sort of doesn't really like the concept of separability, at least in the Supreme Court judgments, once you start from the premise that the arbitration agreement can be governed by a different law and can be considered a separate agreement, it sort of makes sense to look at the law um, or any pointer to the law uh, within the arbitration agreement itself. And it is far more common to have a choice of seat because right. that seat choice imports a complete procedural framework. 
So what the Law Commission is suggesting, I think it's fair to say, is likely to save cost is something that is probably supported by quite a lot of practitioners because it's easier um, and will probably improve English law um, in a way where it is failing somewhat at the moment. Mm. I I was reading through the consultation paper and there was some of the the arguments against this or or let's say some of the the motivations behind discussing this was the fact that you would have a you would have a contract that would be governed by English law but then they would say typically in some of these international arbitrations for example the law of the seat would be a foreign law um and they would and they kind of wanted to have some harmony or predictability into how the law of the arbitration agreement would be selected but it it seemed like it was trying to at, or at least in the consultation paper, it was trying to illuminate that the concepts of separability, um, the, the the arbitrability and stuff that under English law is quite broad and generous, they called it. Um, and therefore, it would have been you kind of they wanted to have more emphasis or more of an attraction to having English law be the law applicable to the arbitration agreement. Do you think do you think there was a motivation to to have it become more English law or just to have a predictability between, okay, the, there's an express choice of law usually for the law of the seat and therefore the parties can be expected to have or want to have more predictability and having that law be applicable to the arbitration agreement. What do you think is the motivation for bringing it to the law of the seat versus the law of the contract? I think it's a bit of both. Mm. Um, predictability and certainty, I think, is definitely a motivating factor and quite a big one. Because, you know, as I say, the law of the seats imports a procedural framework. And as part of that procedural framework, you're probably going to have to look at uh, the arbitration agreement, things like the scope of the arbitration agreement, what it governs um, when you're determining the procedure. Mm -hmm. So if if it's, let's say, an English arbitrator looking at the English procedural framework because the seat is in London, Mm -hmm. it kind of makes sense for them to apply English law to the arbitration agreement, ignoring, you know, let's say the substantive law is, is is Spanish. The relevance of that will come much later once you're dealing with the merits of the dispute. Right. So it does kind of make sense to have your English arbitrator looking at it from an English perspective. But equally, um, you, you know, when you look at the stats, uh, the, 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 the most popular seat, as far as I remember, in most areas is still England. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are others that have creeped up, like Hong Kong, Singapore. Obviously, Paris has always been very popular as well. But English, I think, overall is still the most popular or, 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 or very high up there. Now, if you choose a rule that says English seats means English law, mm-hmm. um, y- y- you are y- you are giving yourselves a, a leg up. Um, and increasing the sort of popularity of your own law through the back door because you're promoting English law. Um, So so I think it is both. I I, I think it's hard to say it's one or the other. Right. right. Well, that makes sense. um, Do you think, so now that this has been reformed, do you think that it's garnered a lot of support for this? Um, Or do you think it's still on the fence between practitioners on whether this is the right reform to, to put forward? Well, that's a difficult question. The Law Commission was not originally going to look at this. So this was at the back of the original Law Commission report. It said, if there's something you think we've missed, um, tell us mm-hmm. and we'll think about it. And lots of people wrote in saying, maybe you should think about Enker and Chubb. 
that suggests that practitioners want to reform to this area. But as you say, Brian, that there were people who wrote in and there are different views mm-hmm. uh, saying that Enker and Chubb's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, th- I think on, on balance, I mean, when you look at Enker and Chubb and when you look at the complexity that comes from it, the fact that a decision had to go to the Supreme Court right. to determine what law governs an arbitration agreement, um, I think tells you that the law is complex. And yes. as you said early on in the piece, uh, you know, simplicity, making things better is what all of this reform is about. And a default rule um, that points to the law of the seats and doesn't have this complexity that looks at choice of law of the main contract, blah, 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 mm-hmm. um, is making things simpler. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it it may well go in that direction, yes. And it was also cost effective, right? And to your point about it having to go to the Supreme Court is, is avoiding parties having to litigate these issues for years, yeah, um, just to come up with something that could have been decided in the act. And that's kind of pervasive through a lot uh, throughout the other reforms, isn't it? It's it's an emphasis not only on efficiency but cost savings, which I think anyone couldn't really get behind. Oh, oh, hundred percent. I, I mean, one thing I would say though is that you know when you look at the reforms in, in the act as a whole. Uh, sorry, in the in the Law Commission report as a whole, you can see why certain things may not get pushed forward. Um, and Enker uh, and Chubb is one of them. Uh, confidentiality, actually, I think they decided they didn't need to do anything or, or not really do that that much anyway. Right. But one other way of reforming the rules or the law is is through the institutional rules that the parties choose. Right. So at the moment, I think it's fair to say the only set of rules i might be wrong but i'm pretty sure that the only set of rules that actually deals with the law governing the arbitration agreement and says that it's the law of the seat is the lcia rules mm-hmm. and it has a provision that specifically deals with that now if all of the rules did that then even if enker and chubb remained the law if you had a firm position in the institutional rules you wouldn't need reform because enker and chubb would just fall by the wayside um, because most, you know, most of the time, at least for in my experience, uh, contracts, if they choose arbitration, they will choose a set of rules. Um, so that's another way of reforming it. It's it's just yeah. changing the rules. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I So the some of the other um, areas that are discussed in the consultation paper, as you said, you talked about confidentiality, discrimination. There's a, the summary disposal of issues is something that came up, um, discrimination, which I thought was was an interesting point. And then the appeals, as you say, this is uniquely English. Um, and and the, some of the, the conversations around that had to do with this division, whether we're going to call it a full rehearing of the case versus an appeal, but then they didn't like that that explanation or, or differentiation between the two. And they just said that here's, here's kind of the basis on which you can bring an appeal um, of these types of issues, which also had to deal with the fact of cost savings. So um, I just mark that, earmark that for our listeners to to kind of dive into and take a look at what the consultation paper said. I don't know if you have any of all of the other areas that came up, any that were of specific interest to, to you or something to watch out for. Well, I think the summary disposal point is, is interesting because... Um, you know, in English civil procedure, summary judgments, um, that means something quite, quite different to 
you know, right. for example, in the US. But but summary judgment is something that is quite common um, as a something that people apply for. And it's also quite common sense to say, well, let's see if we can save costs by getting rid of these proceedings early on. In, in arbitration, it's arguable that under a lot of the rules, tribunals have had the power to summarily dismiss proceedings for a very long time because they right. have very broad procedural discretion. But they don't like doing it because they get worried that, you know, something like Section 33 of the Arbitration Act or Article 14, I think it is, of the LCA rules that deals with the fairness of the procedure, the reasonable opportunity to present one's case, right. will mean that they will get scuppered on a, on appeal under Section 68. So, so what this um, summary sort of this section if it comes in that would allow a tribunal the express power to summarily dispose of proceedings means is that you're 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 you're, you're telling the tribunal you, you do have the power uh, you can do it and if you think that something can be gotten rid of quickly go for it and i think that's a good idea um to confirm to tribunals the power that they've all, always had Right. And and to your point before about usually, the and it can also be a reform through the institutional rules, a lot of institutional rules are adding this. Um, so this is kind of going with this general trend towards giving the tribunals comfort to be able to to be able to do that, to increase the options that parties can have to dismiss unmeritorious claims, yes. and then and then reassure the courts when they're determining the award that, that the procedure has been followed, which is what kind of is drawn out from the consultation paper. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I personal opinion, I, I, I am in support of the option. Obviously, mm-hmm. we don't want to, there's always this pushback about it becoming too much of a litigation style proceedings. But I think it's, I think something like this, in the lens of saving costs and, and giving tribunal members the comfort, I think is, is always a positive reform. I agree, definitely. Well, thank you. I mean, I mean I'm, I'm interested to hear what happens after the, will they, will they um, publish any the consult the response that they've had to the second consultation or will it just be incorporated and then move on to the next phase i can't remember i i my feeling is that when they release a report with the draft bill they will have a summary of the consultation responses gotcha. uh, in it i mean certainly the second report is i think it's it, it it refers to the consultations and and all that and, and there is some way of being able to access uh responses i'm not quite sure how but but um this is supposed to be an open procedure right um that is very much um user driven mm-hmm. um so i'm i'm sure there will be ways of seeing you know where people have come out on this stuff yeah very interesting well i i, I hope it moves forward i think i mean 25 years is not a long time but so i i applaud the the commission for taking an early stab at this and, and reforming it. So happy, look, happy to see what comes out of it. Indeed. Indeed. Thank you for joining us. And um, your paper was published where we'll put a link in the description. Oh, thank you very much. Um, <laughs> it's in the international and comparative law quarterly. Uh, it's, was it last month? I think. Yes. Um, so yeah, it's in there. Um they're a great journal, so uh, read it more generally, I would say. Yeah, and well, as, as I said, we'll put a link in the, the description for people to follow. And uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Brian. And we'll keep an eye out for what happens next. Great, appreciate it. Thank you.
Bryant, when you are going to a conference mm -hmm. and you see an arbitrator that is in one of your cases. Mm -hmm. Happened to me recently. Did you say hi to that person? No. You didn't? No. We And I actually have a really interesting story on that because I, I met that person before the award was rendered and yeah. after the award was rendered and the interactions were very different. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. So what, what? So first of all, how are the interaction different? When you got the award, was it in favor of you or no? It was split, <laughs> okay. split the baby a bit, but um, right. the, um, the, the interaction was before I was at a conference here in London and it was just a nod and walk the other direction. Um, not even a hello, not even anything. And it was, it was just the two of us in a hallway. So it could have easily had like a, Hey, how are you? Um, but we kind of mutually agreed that it wouldn't be appropriate um, to, to, to even look like we're speaking. And then the second interaction was after the award at ICA. And we sat at a table together, had a drink together, talked for about 20 minutes. So it was much, much different. <laughs> oh, my gosh, really? Because I OK, but maybe I, I, I think it's ludicrous that you can't sit down and speak to someone who's on your um, you know, just speak generally speaking, of course, not about the case, right. but it, it's not like closed doors. No. You're speaking to someone in front of everybody else. I mean, we're part of the same um, arbitral community talking about like, for example, you know, we talked in, in true about Tinley Hall. And um, I, I heard that also from other people from senior practitioners who were like, you know, they were not comfortable seeing, um, you know, or next to other people who were um, on the same cases as them or taking pictures with them or even talking to them like one-on-one, -on -one, um, mm. which, which you know, I, I honestly think it's like, come on. Yeah, okay? what are we worried about here? What are, Exactly, what are you worried? And, and, and I do see the problem between like the very close people who are really good friends and they, you know, invite each other on the weekends and maybe their kids are are so close or their wives, I don't know, you know, you, you have mm -hmm. closeness and then you have closeness in the arbitration community where we're just nice to each other and, and share views on the arbitration act. I mean, that's it, you know, or, um, on personal experiences, but it doesn't go as far as saying that we're friends. So where do you draw the line and would you, should you err on the, you know, um, be more cautious or just be yourself. I've always just been myself. Yeah, you know, I'm just kind of being normal with everybody, and if I'm not normal with someone, that that's weird. Actually, <laughs> it is weird, and, and yeah, to your point and what you said in the introduction, what are the consequences? I mean, what what are you really basing your paranoia on if you if two people are seen in a public space talking to each other that happen to be involved in the same case when that happens more often than not these days? Well, challenges, I guess. That's the due process paranoia. And and even if you you know, we know, all know these kind of challenges would not be successful. It's right. still it's still annoying. It's still yeah. annoying for the case, for the people. It's embarrassing. You just kind of justify yourself and it's uh but are, but are we gonna let go, you know, give in to these kind of um threats, uh, futile threats? I think we should concentrate our efforts in fighting those futile challenges as opposed to stop being nice to each other and even say hello to each other. You know, I, I know, mean that's crazy. I know. 
Imagine I know it was a bit much. Group and you wouldn't even say hello. You'd just be like, oh, you are not going to say hello to you. That's no, that's not normal. That happened. Um, it happened to me at another time at a conference and it was the secretary of the tribunal wouldn't even talk to me um, because they were worried that there would be some. sort. And that person doesn't even technically have any decision authority in the, in the case. And therefore, there would be no reason for me to like sway their opinion so and what are you really going to do like what are you really going to talk to them about as if your personal interaction is going to have trigger some unconscious bias that they will find in favor of your client yeah exactly and exactly it's very good point that you made like you can we're talking about counsel and arbitrators but then it would should we extend that same you know cold shoulder to the secretary of the tribunal and and you know exit um exit people as well if you have an exit case and uh um uh, you know the people in charge of uh, of the admin and everything like come right. on yeah, because yeah. I mean, you would even you could even extend that to the institutions if they have a case yeah. before you at preliminary stages. They're making it. Let's say it's someone on the ICC court making a yeah. decision on some jurisdictional thing. Yeah, and you can't talk to them either. Yeah, no, it's not. I mean, um, uh, now okay. Now having paused that, I'm going to yeah. say what I said at Tinley is is when we talk about challenges, uh, we tend to forget what the test is. You know, the test is this reasonable objective. Um, you know, person and would is that reasonable objective person part of the arbitration community? Or is that reasonable mm. objective person outside of the arbitration community, which, for example, would see us and be like, uh, wait, they have, you know, they're really close, they're friends, uh, they do a podcast together, but they can't possibly, can't possibly at all uh be um, you know, professional and not biased uh right. in front of each other or stuff like that. So, you know, I I I can hear people getting upset um about certain um certain closeness uh for example within the same chambers again to become to bring my french cap <laughs> you know the barristers and chambers are like oh you have no idea we hate each other you know and the french are like uh you're still from the same chambers mm -hmm. um so uh, you know i would expect you to 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 still know what's going on in other people's cases, which is actually, you know, debatable whether it's true or not. But um, so that's also an additional point that I wanted to make. It really depends where you are in the world and mm. and whether you find this appropriate or not. Because the clique that we're talking about, it really is in London and Paris and in yeah. the US and so on, right? I don't know if there are cliques like that in I don't know. Maybe they are, you know, yeah. Japan or Poland or whatnot. Singapore. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I think that it's, it does go a bit far and I think we're obviously risk averse as a, as natured practitioners that we just want to avoid any appearance of it. But like, you know, if I wanted to appoint you as an arbitrator, I bet, which I think is completely valid. I think that a lot of, there would be a, probably an objection raised. I don't know what you think about that. That they would be an objection raised, or yeah, no? yeah, just by sure. the by the pure point of our. Even though it's not podcast. in the IBA guidelines, we're <laughs> right? Not, <laughs> that'll, that'll be in the reforms. We'll we'll, we'll put pros. <laughs> well, some people were also saying they're completely outdated, and you need to like kind mm. of reform them and so on and so forth. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's the thing. Is like it doesn't mean that there's necessarily going to be an objection or a challenge to an award. Like for example, and okay, not to. Um, you know, offend people from a certain jurisdiction, but we do know that there are certain ju jurisdictions um, in other continents where 
every no matter what happens, your word's gonna be challenged or set aside. It right. doesn't matter, right? right? So are you gonna be like super, super, super cautious with all those things that you know are 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 on the face of it? There's nothing, there's nothing that's problematic, or or are you just um are you just you know just respect the rules applicable to you on what's right. reasonable, not reasonable, and that's it. Um yeah. I, I find, and this might be a tangent, but I think there's a, a an ulterior motive and maybe an alternative explanation to this, which is that someone who's quite senior, maybe this person who you experienced this past weekend, is that you want to have an air of mystery and seriousness, and mm-hmm. you don't want to appear too available and too approachable, and that will default into someone thinking of you as a potential person to a point because they find you very serious. Whereas you go to a conference with someone and they have too many drinks and you're like, Oh, I could never appoint that person. Or I I, I would never find them a trustworthy co-counsel or something like that. Oh no. I hope that's not the case. Cause I think, I think, you know, people were getting, you know, especially when you spend the weekend together debating issues, I think, you know, there are times where you go for a walk or go right. on a treadmill or, you know, on the pool or stuff, not together. Yeah. You could do it on your, and it would be a shame if people would judge you for just living and having a drink and, and stuff. I hope not. I really, and again, you know, I think my view is, gosh, I hope it doesn't have a chilling effect on being nice to each other and kind this to is each a, other. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, because that would be such a shame. It's, it's also, it also applies, by the way, to opposite counsel. Yes. How do you behave with an opposite counsel uh, on an ongoing case? You know, I I have another funny story about this. I was, <laughs> it was my first year. I was a junior, junior baby lawyer, and we had it was my first exit case, and we there was a fire drill at the World Bank, so everyone had to evacuate and stand outside, and it was a spontaneous fire drill. So we oh, were all wow. just waiting outside, not knowing what to do, and I recognized someone on opposing counsel's team who I had coached in the Frankfurt investment moot. Oh. And now I saw them being employed by the firm on the other side. So I was really excited. So we talked during the fire drill. And when we finished, I went back to my team and the partners were like, what are you doing? <laughs> and I was like, I just asked how her, like, how she's doing after graduation. And they were oh, like, oh, that is so that. lame. I None just, yeah, I, I don't, you don't know. You don't have to hate the people, okay, that are on the opposite side. And in fact, in my experience, it has made things so much nicer if you guys get along yes. because it just is such, so much more efficient. I'm not saying don't defend your client or don't, of course, we're going to fight for them no matter what, but there are some things worth fighting about. There are some things that are completely crazy and it's, yeah. it's so much nicer for the tribunal too, to just have parties who cooperate in court you know on on certain issues and yeah and also like i felt um on a case that i did 10 years ago there was opposite counsel and um the team was like you know oh my gosh this is crazy with you know their approach and they were just being not nice comments Mm -hmm. about them um and um would like we all do to be honest you know because you just want to you, you, you want to reassure yourself your case is good and right um but on it's a different thing to go on a personal level and and i i actually you know thought the opposite lawyer was was very good um mm-hmm. in their skills not i'm not talking about the case but just and i think this is a thing that as a, a good camar- camaraderie you know we should say to each other 
No? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so yeah. I, I never dared to say that to, and she was a woman too. And then, you know, I saw her again after so many years and I went to her at Tinley Hall and I said to her, I said, you know what? Um, I don't know if you remember, there was this case. She's like, yeah, yeah, I remember. And I said, well, I just wanted to tell you that I think you're you're great, you know? <laughs> <laughs> no matter what the outcome of the case was or whatever. And that's fine, yeah. And she was really, you know, I could feel it's that's just how you, yeah, it's, it's, it's all right, you know, you're being a good lawyer. You should be able to say those things. Exactly. Yeah. It, it goes back to that this is like a profession and we should like treat it as, you know, there is a separation and... That's what was happening beforehand. You'd go and argue your case and shake hands afterwards. That's that's how it works. And I, I think not to pat ourselves on the back, but this was the purpose of the podcast, which is showing yeah. that you can take that thin layer of like false, you know, seriousness out of the profession yeah. and realize that we can have really interesting discussions without repercussions um, and and have it with a layer of informality. So um this is what the podcast was designed to encourage. So, yeah, that's great. That's a great way to put it because we work in a in a disputes world. So you know, that's people it. assume that you're constantly fighting, and and gosh, no, <laughs> we don't want to. It's exhausting. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I go home and I'm like, oh, I just like every time you open a new draft for a letter, you're like, all right, let me put my angry face on and like get this. Yeah, going. no, but that's how it is. You know, when you go in a hearing, it's like you're on stage and the, you know, the, 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 the curtains are, are opening and this is it. You're, you're doing your, you know, act one and act yeah, two and yeah. you're acting. You really are. <laughs> and then when everything's over, everyone's shake hands and smile and relieved and, and you go back to your lives. So <laughs> yeah. we are just professional actors at the end of the day. Aren't right. We? Yeah. That's so, very true. Yeah. So keep saying hi to people. And yes. Be kind. There's Please. no consequence. We all Everybody's know this. Everybody's a human being. Yeah, exactly. If you're challenged just because you said hi to someone or had a drink with someone, be nice. Like, shame on them, not on you. For exactly. Having... Get some adverse costs out of it and buy them exactly. another drink. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very good point. Very good. <laughs> well, that, that was a great topic. All right. On that note, we should have a drink. <laughs> yes. Let's mingle. All right. See you next time. Bye. Bye.